today. God, we pray that your undeserved grace, Lord, that we just partook of through the elements, through your shed blood and your broken body, Lord, we pray that that would sanctify our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit as we open your word, as we set our minds on Christ in whose name we pray and we all said together, amen. We'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. And Kat is going to read our passage this morning, starting with verse 14 through verse 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, This, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Kat. Well, we are in week two of our uh, eight-month, you heard that correctly if you didn't catch it last week, of of our eight-month series going through uh, the Gospel of Mark. We're entitling it Walking with Jesus. If you remember last week, if you were with us, we talked about how God uh, executed His redemptive plan, this plan of salvation that He had put forth from the very beginning. He executed His redemptive plan. He did it by sending John, John the Baptist, to prepare the way with this message of repentance that was going to be what was going to uh, prepare everybody for the coming of Jesus. And today, we're going to see just that. We're going to see Jesus come on the scene, establishing his authority by calling his uh, disciples. Um, So today's message is called just that. It's called the call and the cost of following Jesus. And that's a question always for us. and it's this, what, what, is, what is that? What is the call? What is the cost of following Jesus? Have you, ever thought, um, have you ever thought about it that way? What is this thing that I was counting the cost of when I went before the Lord and I repented of my sins and I believed the gospel? What is the call? What is the cost? The question for us is, do we follow Jesus or does our Christian faith look maybe more like a series of self-made detours. Because if we're following somebody, um, just by simple logic and reason, it means that we go where they go. So for us today, the question that we are going to be asking and hopefully answering is, what is the cost and what is the call of following Jesus? And are we actually following Jesus? Because the call of the gospel is to leave behind things. It's to leave behind our comforts to follow Jesus as he becomes the overwhelming comfort of our life. So the cost of following Jesus is first and foremost the cost that Jesus paid for us. That's how we understand what it means when we count the cost. And what Jesus does for us today through this passage, he gives us a couple of examples of the call and cost of following him. And the first one, as Kat just read in verse 14, the first one concerns John the Baptist who paid the cost. When it says in verse 14, if you look down, now after John was arrested. Now Mark uh, is, is going to give us further insight 
into what happened after John's arrest later. We're going to see that in a couple of chapters. But you get the sense here from last week that God very strategically is moving John out of the way as we see Jesus coming on the scene. Because it says right there in 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. But I think it's important for us to note that it was John's boldness that actually led to his arrest. All right, As we saw last week, this was a dude who was a bold brother. He was bold in the way he dressed. He was bold in the things that he ate. And he was bold with his message of uh, repentance. Um, so the cost that John paid for the sake of the gospel, it created a testimony for the cost that Jesus would pay on the cross. And we're going to see that kind of flesh out as we sort of take this journey and take this road through Mark uh, to the cross where we see Christ pay for our sins. So following Christ, and what we're going to learn this morning is that following Christ means counting the cost. There's a cost. And for some, for some of us, the cost is going to be different things, right? For some of us, the cost is going to be credibility, we're going to lose some credibility for uh, bearing the name of Christ, for saying that I follow Christ. For some of us, it could even be job security. Certainly for some of us, it's going to be relationships with family members. For some, it will be ridicule, right? You believe that? You follow him? Um, for some of us, it'll be a loss of, of opportunities, and the list goes on. John paid the cost to pave the way for Jesus. But there was something beyond that, wasn't there? Because when we think of this, this idea of paying the cost, we think, what, what do I get? Like, what do I get in return for, for paying, right? So when we give money towards something, we usually think about something that we're going to get in return. It's a little bit different here because what happens is Jesus paid the cost so that we could have peace with God, but that also comes at a cost for us in the way that we live out our existence in a world that doesn't know God, right? But what that means for the Christian and what that meant for John the Baptist is there was a reward. The reward. The reward for following Jesus. The reward for counting the cost. For receiving the call. There's a reward. And that reward is given to us not just on this earth, but in the, the world to come. So the question we want to ask as we start in verse 14 and we see now after John was arrested is we want to ask the question, what gave John his boldness? Like, why was this brother so bold? What gave John the heart that he has? In fact, what gives anyone, you, me, what gives anyone the heart to follow Christ knowing the cost? Well, he says it right there. He says it's the gospel of God, right? Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Of God. This is what's going to provide us with the boldness as we count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. It's the gospel of God which Jesus came proclaiming. Paul actually speaks to this in Romans 8 when he says this, talking about his own call and the cost that he was paying. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the glory here uh, is contained in the message. John and then Jesus proclaimed, which was the gospel of God, the good news of God. Um, and, you know, we hear that word gospel a lot, don't we? We, we say that word a lot here. We, we want to be a gospel-centered church, right? When you click on the website, substance-church.org, right? It says gospel-centered right when, the, uh, right, when, right when it comes up, after you click 
after you click the link. We hear the word gospel a lot. We hear the word good news a lot, which is what gospel means. And, you know, unless you read the paper or you watch the news or you go on social media, and then there's a, there's a, there's a limit to the kind of good news you're going to be hearing right now. But we don't want to glaze over the good news of God as it's expressed and proclaimed here by Jesus. Because this is not just the good news, right? Like some of us receive good news. I get good news about things and about stuff and about people. This is the good news of who? I was trying to do a little, little response there, but you guys didn't grab hold of that, right? We're not there yet as a church. The gospel of God. Yeah, you still didn't get it. Okay, I'm going to move on. But who are we talking about? We're talking about God, right? Who is the infinite, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the all-loving creator of the universe who came to us in human form by virtue of his son to communicate a message to us that would bring us back into his presence, you know what all this is for? All this is for the gospel, the death of Christ. It's all so that we can sit in front of God. We can see him face to face. And we don't have any shame. And we don't have any sin that's going to corrupt and prevent that from happening. That's why all this is happening. It's to get back into his presence. Understand it like this, okay? Every time you behold a snow-capped mountain, right? a snow-capped peak of a mountain, or like the, the intricate design of a flower, or, or just the stunning brightness of a sunset, or the, the expansiveness and the vastness of a star-filled sky. Every time you catch a glimpse of a butterfly, right? Of a butterfly just spreading its sort of delicate and complex and multicolored wings that were created by non-human hands. You know what that means? The gospel of God is the good news that we can personally reunite with the one who created those things. That's what we're talking about. It's not just news. It's not just opening up the Ashland Times Gazette. It's the good news of God. That is why John was arrested. And consider the cost of following Jesus worth it. This is why Paul thought suffering was just a small cost. So we want to pray that the gospel of God quickens and sharpens our hearts and provides bursts of color to overwhelm the blandness that so easily overcomes us. You know, I kept reading this phrase on Friday, the gospel of God over and over. And I prayed and I said, God, why does this leave me so underwhelmed? Why does this leave me so underwhelmed? Well, because... I have a heart that is drawn to and obscured by dullness because I've not believed and meditated on the full meaning and implications of what the good news actually means for me every minute of every day. It reminded me of when I, I grew up, we used to camp out in the desert. And it was this amazing thing when you would camp in the desert and you were in the middle of nowhere and it was just black and you'd look out in the sky, and it was like you didn't even need light because the stars were so bright. But, but the thing was, when you were in a town or you were in a city, you could barely see the stars because the lights of the city were so bright. The lights of the city were actually not brighter than the stars. They just obscured the light of the stars. And that's what happens to us, is that we allow things to obscure the brightness and the truth and the glory of the gospel. So Jesus calls people. He proclaims the gospel of God. He calls people to the good news of God. And he kind of does it with a three-point message. You want to know where I get my, my three points? 
You know, you're not digging my three points? Well, Jesus does three points here. And this is what he does. This is what he says. He says three things. He has three points. He says, one, time, the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So when he says the time is fulfilled, this is what the people who he's proclaiming this gospel to, this is the thing, this is the message, this is the news they had been waiting for. Everything prophesied about the coming Messiah from the law and the prophets, it was now coming to pass because he was there. So the plot of this, this redemptive history that God had been writing, it had finally arrived. Luke 16 lays it out like this. It says, the law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. We won't break down everything that that verse means, but what Jesus is trying to say here is, hey, all the time that God used to prepare us for me, that time has been fulfilled. I'm here. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God was at hand. And it was at hand because King Jesus had arrived. That's why the kingdom of God was at hand. It was a different kind of kingdom. It's not the way that we think of kingdom. It was one that came through sacrifice, not conquest. It was a different kind of kingdom. It was not an earthly kingdom, right? With a castle and a moat and armies and a guy, you know, ruling with a scepter on a throne like the Burger King dude. It wasn't that kind of a kingdom. That wasn't the direction of God's kingdom plan. That's not where he went with it. God's kingdom was about a king establishing his rule in people's hearts. It's a different kind of kingdom. Galatians 4 says, Paul's writing, and he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. He says it right there. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That means under the curse of the law. That means under bearing the weight of our sin and not being able to find a way on our own to be released from it. And he says, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Well, how does one find adoption as sons? How does one find this redemption? How does one enter the kingdom of God? Well, he says it right there, by repenting and believing the gospel. The message of Jesus is so clear, you guys. It's so clear. Why do we, why do we dilute it? Why do we dilute it? Why do we think it can be 20 different messages? I mean, many times the church feels the need to manage the message, right? we got to pretty it up. Because, man, repent and believe. Like, nobody wants to hear that. I've heard dudes say that. Nobody wants to hear that. So sometimes churches try to manage the message. We're so afraid of offending people that it's like we add an artificial sweetener to something. That, by the way, is not bitter. It's good news. Maybe some of you have been in churches where the message was just unclear. You hadn't, heard, you hadn't heard that good news, that gospel message of repent and believe. Or maybe it was just clearly wrong. Maybe they just preached that there was some other way to get right with God. Or maybe it was just unsaid. They talked about everything else. They talked about everything to make your life a little more tight and a little better and a little more livable. But they really never mentioned that the root of that and the object of that, for that to even start to happen, has to be what Jesus actually the writer of the words, the creator of the words, the word, what he says right here, which is repent and believe. And again, repent and believe, that, is, that, is that a formula? Just say repent and believe? Is it abracadabra? Is it like when I used to get those magic sets when I was a kid and you used to open it up and like, you know, open up the card tricks and say, okay, say this and then flip the card and it'll be the card and it doesn't and everything goes all over the place and you never play this with the set again. 
I mean, is it a formula like that, where one memorizes? Or is it just something where we got to click off the right boxes and we get a passing grade? Maybe you've understood it to be like that. Because the people back in Jesus' day kind of did. They understood it to be, if I just keep the law, if I just do what I see the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the Sadducees and the writers of the law called the scribes, if I just live the way they live, then I'll be okay, I'll be right with God, I'll get that passing grade. But you know what it is? It's none of that. It's seeing the wretchedness in your heart. It's asking God to forgive the wretchedness in your heart and then believing that Jesus' work on the cross will save you from your wretchedness whereby a new heart emerges. I mean, are we clear on that, Substance Church? Are we clear on the gospel? Have I not been preaching that? Are we clear on this? This salvation moment, okay, this, this moment I'm talking about, this is a one-time event, right? This, this moment where God changes you and you go from darkness to light. But living a saved life is a daily act. It's a daily act of dying to our sin out of a deep love for the one who died for your sin on the cross. Luke said in Luke, Jesus said in Luke 9, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me, Right? So salvation is, is a, a, a one-time occurrence that moves our hearts from being rebellious against God to having peace with God. But it's also part of the daily life where we are constantly repenting of our sin and turning away from it more deeply. Martin Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The entire life. So Jesus was saying Repent and believe the gospel, surely as that one moment that reconnects us and reunites us with God, but he also meant it to be a lifestyle. Because the gospel call that Jesus proclaimed was and is holistic. It's a holistic call. It should affect every area of life for all of life. The rub is that we're drawn to other messages. We're just drawn to other stuff because repenting and believing the gospel is costly. Right? I mean, look at your life and be honest for a second. Be honest about what you cling to, what you go to, and the place you return to over and over again to give your life meaning and hope. What are those things? Because those are false gospels. Jesus is calling us to repent of and to believe the real gospel. And all of us should have some level of fear and trembling when we read this. We must feel the depth of our depravity. And understand how easily this message of repent and believe becomes underwhelming in our souls. We must not miss the weight of Jesus' words. Because you know why? Because when Jesus preached repent and believe, do you know what he was doing? He was preaching his inevitable future on the cross when he opened his mouth to preach those words. It was the cross that would lead to our repentance and belief. It was the cross that would make repentance and belief the way for sinners to be saved from an eternal death. There was future suffering in Jesus' message. There was a future cost contained in his words every time he urged the people to repent and believe in the gospel. It's not different today. And you know what? None of us know how urgent this message is because we don't know the number of our days. I had a good brother of mine. I do some work for our denomination 
uh, the EFCA. I had a good brother of mine, a friend. Uh, he, is the na- he was the national director of all the church planning that goes on in our uh, denomination. And we were together two weeks ago in Chicago to have some meetings. And there was about 12 of us. And this guy uh, goes home. He has a cabin. Goes to his cabin. And uh, I got a call the next day and said, uh, Jeff Sorvik, cabin uh, lit up. Uh, the cabin caught fire, and he died in the fire. I mean, what do you do with that? What, what do you do with something like that? I was just with the guy. It's all those surreal things. It's all those, mo- it's all those things that rise up to the surface. I was just with him a minute ago. Thankfully, he knew Jesus, but nobody knew that that was going to happen. Just like none of us know when our time is. That's the urgency of the message. Let's not lose that here at Substance. Let's not lose the heart of the gospel message, which calls us to count the cost that Jesus paid. We also need to count the cost that we are called to pay, like John the Baptist did. Let's move on. Look at verse 16. When Jesus calls his first disciples, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of John, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So Jesus here He begins his ministry. He calls his first disciples. He begins his ministry by preaching the gospel and by calling those to follow him in this gospel message. Don't miss the fact that Jesus was the one that went out. Jesus was the one that makes the call. Jesus was the one that does the choosing. Jesus was the one that does the gathering. And what's interesting about this from a historical perspective is that this would have been kind of an unusual thing at the time for Jesus to do this because the tradition of the day would have been that students were the ones that sought out rabbis or teachers to follow and be taught by. But here we see Jesus as a teacher. We see here Jesus seeking out the men he wants to teach and have follow him. And that's because discipleship, making disciples, making authentic believers and followers of Jesus, that was Jesus' mission. In Luke 19.10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was the mission of Jesus, to make disciples. Jesus seeks, he saves. And not only that, but he loves those that he seeks and saves so that they might do the same. Jesus is the one that initiates by his love. In 1 John, he says, uh, John the, the apostle tells us, We love because he first loved us. Because his love came out to us to change us so that we might model his mission. So this is what Jesus does. He calls a group of fishermen. Just guys working day jobs, right? Dudes without degrees, references or recommendations. That's what I love about this. Jesus didn't go to a temp agency to find some brothers available for ministry. That's not what he does here. If Jesus would have consulted an advisory board like these guys, they would have not been on the list. They would have not been on the list, right? But God looks differently when he talks about qualifications, when we think about qualifications. God looks at the hearts of men and women. Remember David? Remember David, the king? God looked at David's heart. This dude was just a shepherd. 
He was the youngest born son in his family, which didn't get you a lot back then. You didn't get a lot of clout for that. But he saw David's heart. Remember Ruth. Remember the story of Ruth. God took this woman who was a widow and he used her to continue the family line that would eventually get us all the way to Joseph and Mary and we would see Jesus being born. So we look at the heart of Ruth who was a widow. God used her as well. So God seeks hearts to shape into the form of his heart. And that's what he was doing right here with these fishermen. So, so we call Simon and Andrew who were casting a net, it says, into the sea. Now these were dudes who likely had a thriving business, right? The Sea of Galilee was kind of this magnificent body of water, we're told, in that day. And it actually had a very unique uh, variety of fish that would have provided a good fisherman with a good living. So Jesus pursues them, again, guys, with, with businesses, with careers, with vocations, and says, hey, I see what you do, but let's talk about who you will become if you follow me. And that's the call right? It's not do as much as it's become. It's become a disciple, become a student, become a learner of Jesus. That's what's going on here. That's why the call of Jesus is different than other calls. You know what Jesus didn't say? And this is where I think we get a little mixed up. Jesus didn't say, you know, your, your dreams can only get you so far, fellas. So let me help you realize your full potential here. He doesn't say that. And Jesus was not a talent scout. And I think some of us think that Jesus is like a talent scout, even if we've never used that lingo, right? In other words, if you decide to go with him, he'll help you realize all of your dreams and ambitions. That's what Jesus is for. He's here for us. But you know what following Jesus does? It redeems our dreams and ambitions. Jesus messes with us. He messes with our job descriptions. He messes with our vocations. He messes with our ambitions. He messes with our dreams. He tweaks them. You know why he tweaks them? Because they're small. Because our big dreams aren't really that big. They're small. Jesus said to these men, I see what you do, but follow me and you will become People who fish for something far more important than fish. I will make you fishers of men. And it says they left their nets immediately and followed him. There was an urgentness there, wasn't there? There was an immediateness. And then it says in verse 18 through 19 that James and John left too. We get a similar story with them, except it says they left their father with the hired servants. So it could be that Simon and Andrew had the thriving, you know, mom and pop small business, and down the road, James and John had, you know, the established franchise because they had hired servants. Peter and Andrew were casting nets, it says. James and John were mending nets for others to cast. But the cost of following Jesus was the same for both. You know what it included? Loss of comfort and familiarity. Because that's what was happening when they left their fathers and they left the family business. Now, it is doubtful that these brothers knew where this call would eventually take them. Jesus doesn't give them any of that information, does he? Remember when Jesus called Abraham in the Old Testament? He said, Abraham, get your family, get up, and go. Like no GPS back then, right? Not, not like just give me a minute, I'm going to text you the address, you can punch it in and you'll know where to go. That's not what happened back then. Jesus said, go, and Abraham said, oh, yeah, right, okay. And he packs up his family and he just starts walking, right? No Amtrak, no jets, no... Horse and carriage, how old school do we need to get here? None of that. He went. We see the same thing here. 
the calling of Christ, the calling of God on a person's life, but also a loss, a loss of comfort and a loss of familiarity. Now, is Jesus trying to say that everyone needs to quit their day jobs and go into full-time ministry? Of course not. But he is calling you where you are to follow him so that, listen, the job you have becomes secondary to the call, which is to be fishers of men, to be disciple makers, to be disciples who make disciples. We use that line a lot. And you know what happens in that? That, That's how God redeems our vocation. That's how God gives meaning and eternity and lastingness to our gifts and to our ambitions and to our dreams. Do you see, that's what he's doing with Simon and Andrew. That's what he's doing with James and John here. He was calling them to follow him. God doesn't always call us out of what we're doing. In fact, most of the time he doesn't. But he calls us in what we are doing to shine his light through what we do. And that's the call for all of us. Whether you're called to full-time vocational ministry, the call is still there to be a light, to proclaim the good news, and to follow Jesus in that. Some implications to these, to these passages. Here's, here's what these verses tell us, I think, about the call of the gospel Because Jesus gave us three points, I'm going to finish with three points. And I don't think anybody can argue with that now that I pointed it out that way. (laughs) The first one is this, when we talk about the call of the gospel, it's that it is a call out of comfort. We just talked about that for a minute. You know, catching fish for these brothers, it was an exercise in self-reliance, wasn't it? Fish would always be in the Sea of Galilee. But fishing for men was something different. It would be slow. It would be dangerous work, as we would see as we read the Gospels and further on into the New Testament. And you know, in a lot of ways, they'd probably be giving up some of their dreams, right? Doesn't God give dreams? Is that a question maybe that's popped up for you right now? Like, Martin, does God give, like, can I have dreams? Does God give dreams? Yeah, I think he does. He gives dreams that further your sanctification in his mission. That's not the kind of dream I want. Yeah, but that's the kind of dream that God gives that will promote your soul in shaping it to be more like Christ, which is how you understand joy. That's what he does. That's the dream that he replaces your less than dream with. Because dreams, most of the time, are incredibly self-reliant, meaning that we rely on them to bring fulfillment and comfort But maturity in Christ is when your dreams are redeemed to reflect God's design, which is, again, your sanctification. Here's my question. And write this down if, you, if you're a guy that takes notes. Is your heart invested in untimely toil? And we all got to do things that we don't like to do. This is not like, well, I'm not taking out the trash ever again now, Martin. I... I feel like I I feel good about that. Now, that's untimely toil. That's obviously not what we're talking about. But is your heart invested in untimely toil, in things that don't 
relate well to the mission of God, to following Jesus. Because, you know, we don't really get a great return on things that aren't kingdom things. We just don't. And we've all found that out, and we will all continue to find that out. But the call of the gospel is a call out of those things that we think are going to give us some measure of comfort. Jesus says there's a real comfort of which those things can be derived and drawn from. In Mark 10, Peter says this. He began to say to him, to Jesus, talking to Jesus, said, see, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house and brothers, sister, mothers, father, or children's or land for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So you see what Jesus is doing there to Peter? Peter's saying, hey, we, we have left comfort. We have answered this call of the gospel. We have followed you. Look at the things we've given up. And Jesus said, here's the thing. These things that you've given up are just temporary things because in the age to come, there is eternity waiting for you. So the call of the gospel is a call out of comfort. Two, the call of the gospel is the call to trust. It's a call to trust. Jesus is not asking you to give up some things. Jesus isn't asking. He is saying the key to all fulfillment is denying yourself and following me. And following me is forsaking what you love for the greater and ultimate love. And you know what that requires? For us to step into that? It requires trust in believing a God that when he says this is better, we say, regardless of how I'm feeling, I'm going to stop pursuing this and going down this road to do what I know is better, and I'm going to trust him in it. Jesus said a crazy thing in Luke 14, He said, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So in other words, if we have a hold on something, and by us having a hold on something, what I really mean is something that has a hold on us, that squeezes Jesus out of our life and following him and serving him and savoring him. Well, at the end of a life, what we're going to find is we're surrounded by things that have never been in tune and in step with the gospel. And what it probably means is that we have never really followed Jesus. That's what he's saying. Paul talked about suffering not being worth the glory that would come. Remember we read that earlier in the sermon. Paul said it's just not that big of a deal. It's just light and it's momentary. Well, okay, we get that. Suffering maybe. What, what about good things? What about good things that, that actually aren't suffering, but that actually cause us, cause us to be held under their yoke and their slavery. What, what about those things? What do we do about those things? That's a bit more American for us, right? Because we're not really that in touch and that in tune with suffering. Some of us are, undoubtedly. But the majority of us, it takes time. And in fact, we have to live a little life before we even know what suffering is. So for a lot of us, it's, well, what do I do with all these things that I'm working so hard to accumulate? What do I do with that? Can I give those things up? Should I give those things up? Is there a way I can keep those things and still do this? I mean, can I have a little bit of this? Can I have one step over here following Jesus, but I can still go that? You know, we start asking these questions. 
And what we've done in that moment is we've lost that heart of trust. When Jesus says, follow me, it was singular. It was a singular call to follow him. And this is where it gets uncomfortable, except at this, okay? When we're laying this out, when I'm saying this to you, you forget that the same God who says, follow me, is also the same God responsible for giving you a heart that is willing to forsake all else to follow him. He's going to do that for you too. So how do we trust God to do that? Well, we do what Proverbs 3, 5 says. We do it by trusting in him with our heart, all our heart, and not leaning on our own understanding. Remember, fishing was what these brothers knew. The disciples knew fishing. These particular disciples knew fishing. But they left. They left to become learners, to become students who would serve a new master. So following Christ means our self-sufficiency, our self-reliance and understanding will be challenged. Isn't that a great and horrible thing? It will be challenged and it will be proven to not deliver on what it promises. Because the call of Jesus is a transfer of trust. That's what it is for us. So one, the call of the gospel is a call out of comfort. It's a call to trust. And thirdly, it's the call to receive the heart of Jesus. Do you know that there is an enemy out there who wants you to follow your heart? Gosh, how many times do you guys hear that, right? I mean, honestly, man, just watch any reality show, commercials, like whatever you're into, right? You know, I just feel like it's, you know, I, I, it was time for me to follow my heart. You know, we just go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talk to me in a year. Let me know how that's working out for you. That's what you don't get to see, right? Unless you read People magazine, and I'm not judging you for that. You'll find out what's going on with those celebrities. But there is an enemy who wants you to follow your heart, to lean on your own understanding. No, 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 I got this. I know, I know what's good for me. I know what's best for me. I know what's next for me. There's an enemy that wants to convince you that what you think and how you feel and the things you dream of are always right and always most fulfilling. That's the pull. That's the pull. But our hearts, according to the old school prophet Jeremiah, are deceitful above all things. When Jesus calls and we say yes, this is what we find. Here's the beauty. We find that all of our yeses are found in him all of the deep longings of our heart are found to be true in his heart for us. Yes to forgiveness. Yes to peace, to comfort, to hope, to love. Yes to mercy. Yes to grace. Following Jesus is following the one who chose us in love by willingly sacrificing his life for us. The cost of following Jesus is first and foremost the cost that Jesus paid for us. Let's remember what the true cost is. It was made by Jesus. So we can leave behind our comforts because we found a greater comfort. Does your Christian life look more like a detour than it does following the path of Jesus? Remember this. All roads to hell were originally detours to heaven. That's what they are. And you know what? We will be tempted to question the call and the cost. And what we find as we read through the Gospels is that many will walk away because God gives people what they want if they don't want Him. 
But then he also, he chooses some. And he says, follow me. And he says, and your desires will become transformed into the things that will most satisfy you. Because they're contained in me. That's the call and the cost. That's what the call and the cost leads us to, leads us to Jesus. Let's pray. God, change our hearts this morning as we consider the cost. Lord, transform our insides, Lord, as we come to you, we repent of our sins. Lord, we want to believe the gospel. We have so many things in our life that are telling us that it's not worth it, that there is a greater call, that the cost is not worth it, that the price we pay for other things will produce a greater return. Lord, let us be so aware of of that lie. Lord, instead, show us yourself. Show yourself to be most satisfying to us and in us and through us. Lord, as we seek to follow you and we seek to, we seek to walk down the path that you called these disciples to be people that are ambassadors and radiant, glowing examples of people that follow you, that fight the good fight of the faith. People that don't, not people that don't have issues, not people that don't struggle with pain and fear and doubt, but people that turn to you to find the comfort and the answer for those things. Lord, we ask that you would make us disciples. Lord, that you would call us to this great mission, that you would give us courage because we are not very courageous. And we are not very bold. And we think that we're going to find more joy by following our own roads of happiness and comfort. So, Lord, change us. Thank you for being so gracious to us this morning. Thank you that by partaking of your broken body and your shed blood symbolically, Lord, that we're reminded that all we have is Christ and everything we need, all the nourishment we need comes from you. Let us not forget that and meditate on that this week. We pray and all God's people said, amen.